you know, if you want to have a happy life is to have really low or no expectations. Like Warren Buffett once said, if you want to have a successful marriage, have no expectations or low expectations. If you don't insist too much that you're right, you know, you allow for room for your own human misjudgment, then then you might get pleasantly surprised. Welcome to Personal Finance Cat, where I share my personal take on personal finance. Hello, Michelle. Welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you for having me, Handy. I'm so grateful to speak with you today. Thank you. I really appreciate it. So, Michelle, you're a YouTuber, and I started noticing you when you were commenting on some other YouTubers' channels. And I think you and I have very similar investing philosophy. And that's why I reached out to you and was hoping we can talk. To start with, can you tell us about your investing philosophy and how you approach finding value? in the market? Well, I I learned about Warren Buffett and his style of investing over the years. And I found out about Warren Buffett through listening to some investing podcasts, especially this podcast called Invested by Danielle Town and Phil Town. And a lot of people consider Warren Buffett's style of investing to be like value investing. But I try to move away from that term a little bit because some people have very kind of negative connotations of value investing and value stocks. And they think that you're you're buying just cheap stocks and that may have low growth and are not that exciting. But in actuality, some of how Warren Buffett invests is by getting sometimes growth stocks at a reasonable price or also known as GARP. And one of those examples is Apple stock that they have a ton of and it's their number one equity position. So I like to think of myself as an investor who is trying to be like Warren Buffett and his business partner, Charlie Munger. And that's basically what guides me in in everything I do. Like I've tried to learn as much as I can about Warren Buffett and I read his annual letters and I'm trained with the style of how Phil Town and Danielle Town have instructed their listeners and also their readers. So. I highly recommend their book, Invested, also of, of just giving you straightforward approaches and formulas of how to value businesses and therefore stocks that we might want to consider investing in. So that's basically what governs my investing style. That's awesome. Yeah, I read that book. It was a wonderful book. Like you said, it's very straightforward, very easy to follow because the author herself, she's a lawyer, but her dad mm -hmm. has been a well-known value investor. So it's their journey to try to learn together how to value different stocks and other investment opportunities. So agreed, I definitely highly recommend that book as well. So then can you tell us a little bit about how you go about valuing stocks? Are you just following the approaches or methods that Daniel Town and Phil Town teach? Yeah, mostly. And, and there's another book that I read um, and I met the author and he's also an investor named Adam Cecil. And his book is called Where the Money Is. And that one talks about how, you know, we want to apply some of the principles of Warren Buffett, but update them for tech stocks. So, for example, um, if you want to value Google or AKA Alphabet or Facebook, AKA Meta, it may not be as obvious if you just use more traditional metrics, but if you update them, like adjust for some of their operating margins, and things like that, you might find a, a more appropriate price to understand that 
even though it seems like they're trading at higher price to earnings multiples, they're actually maybe more reasonable than one might have assumed. So um, depending on how you calculate the valuation for some of those tech companies, you might come to find that they could be on sale, even though at first glance, if you see like a crazy PE number, it might seem like too much just because you're like, oh, I know the stock market's historical average should have been around 16 PE, but then you're seeing some of these tech companies in the 20, 30 or 40 PE range. And that might be like, it just at first glance seems too high, but then you have to look more beneath the surface. So I think it helps to also put that in a frame of mind. That's great. Yeah. So I'm so glad you mentioned that because I was wondering about that too, because even Charlie Munger bought Alibaba stocks, right? And their PE ratio was pretty high. So I was always wondering how he sort of made the decision to invest. And recently I also did an analysis and a video on how I valued meta stocks, because if you remember towards the end of last year, their PE ratio even dipped to like eight or nine or 10, mm -hmm. which was unheard of for a tech company like that. So I bought in and I'm glad I did because it more than doubled at this point. I wish I bought more, but oh, it is that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I, I'll definitely check out that book. Great recommendation. Thank you. Um, so do you have sort of a general approach of how you balance risk and reward? Because you mentioned growth stocks, and then I know there are different reviews about what is a growth stock, right? Is it really just kind of high growth, high PE ratio, or can it still be, you know, an established company that just has value, but maybe is going through some sort of an event, which made their price go down. So kind of what's your view on maybe the more qualitative aspect of doing research? Well, with the, when you were asking about risk and reward, Mm -hmm. uh, what I've learned, and this is straight from Phil Town, who got it from Warren Buffett, is to remember rule number one, which is to never lose money, and to rule number two, don't forget rule number one. So that's my idea of risk, is I never want to lose my original principle on something. So I, I try to uh, build in a margin of safety, which is an engineering term that Charlie Munger came up with and applied that to investing. And he's known for talking about margin of safety. And I think that um, between Ben Graham and Charlie Munger, uh, Buffett credits those guys for including this concept of margin of safety when you're trying to make an investment where you're trying to buy something at a discount to what something is really worth or its intrinsic value. And that discount could be anywhere between you know, 10% to 50%, depending on how much of a discount you're really aiming for. And, and that enables you to have a cushion because just like there are bridges when we're driving on roads that say the maximum weight limit, that would be a margin of safety because you don't want a truck that's at the full maximum, that's at the heaviest the bridge can handle, and then it could risk falling apart. So bridges have margin of margins of safety. And I think that that's what we should also try to include when we're investing. So I don't have a specific measure of risk and some other investors like Howard Marks don't believe that you can quantitatively measure risk. So I know there's a lot of academics who believe that, oh, you measure risk with beta and volatility, but um, if, if you're more of the Buffett style, you don't even care about 
some of those measures. It, it doesn't even factor in. It's more like, can you permanently lose money um, by locking in a loss? Like, so even if you're down on a stock, you're, you haven't really lost until you've actually sold. So you have to weigh the consideration of, am I likely to actually lose my original principal on this investment? And, and that's what I go by. Is, so I try to not lose my original principal, if you will. So that's my main way that I think about that. And, and I think you also had a, a question related to some of this of quantitative or qualitative right. measures. Yeah. So I think you touched on it a little bit because to me, I feel like I am on the same boat with um, someone you referred to that it's really difficult to quantitatively uh, value risks, right? So, or determine risks, I should say. How do you determine uh, risk from a more qualitative point of view? Because I know that some of the value investors would, you know, stay within their circle of competence because they know the business so well. They know that your risk is mitigated. So can you talk about how you go about determining that? Yeah, and, and the way we can think about risk is if we were the actual business owner operating the business. So if we put ourselves in the shoes of the CEO and they need to perform and there's a business's underlying economics. And one way that we might think about risk is what could be potential competitive um, uh, disadvantages to a company. And one example that recently was coming to mind for me was with how chat GPT could pose a risk to Google's business model of ads and search. And so one has to try to weigh what are the probabilities or odds that chat GPT can unseat the business moat that Google has in place. And, and is it likely that Microsoft can, you know, overtake Google, let's say, in leveraging ChatGPT, or will Google have its own AI-based search and that can help reinforce its moat? So just when we think that ChatGPT is going to breach Google's moat of how they do business, it may not, or it might. So it's kind of hard to really know for sure what's going to happen in the future, but based on these potential competitive risks, we have to try to see, is Google continuing to perform downward? Like, are they losing market share in the ad revenue business or are they able to hold steady? So those same questions also might've come up for Meta because of their struggle against TikTok and, and trying to get Instagram to, you know, hold off TikTok and, and yet, in many ways, TikTok has unseated Instagram for a while. So we have to kind of consider how well are at the business fundamental level, are these companies able to maintain their current business model or do they need to change to uh, improve their business model or is their business model starting to die and they're not adapting fast enough and not innovating quickly enough to, to regain market share. So those are some ways that, and, and there are other kinds of risk, like the management risk, like looking at, can we trust the CEO? Like, do we believe that they have integrity and talent? And do we think that they can make the right capital allocation decisions for the company? And some of this we can discern from reading their annual or quarterly letters if they release them. And there are a bunch of red flags that we can pick up on, on how the management is performing. and 
some of that can be both qualitative and quantitative. Like we can measure um, qualitatively from their letters based on things like how Laura Rittenhouse's book has talked about investing between the lines. So I highly recommend that book to understand, um, you know, if CEOs are being straightforward with you and, and exhibiting candor. And Laura Rittenhouse is, is very well respected in the investing community. Like she knows Warren Buffett and he's even talked about her in one of his annual letters at least. So she is a pretty great source to go with, with how to analyze CEO communication. And then quantitatively, we can look at the return on invested capital if this is going up over time under a CEO's leadership. So those are some factors to consider also of like, is this, is the CEO a risk for the company or are they mitigating risk? So that would be also an avenue I'd explore. Sounds great. And it sounds like you're very knowledgeable about the tech companies by the examples that you mentioned. Can you talk about what your circle of competence is, if there is one area, for example, that you kind of focus your investments in? Well, I'd usually stick to uh, kind of the more consumer or like some tech, but um, even though I might seem knowledgeable about tech, I may not be that knowledgeable because I've never worked in it directly. So I'm sure if you know people who work for Google or Facebook, they might actually know what it's like and, and they would have a great circle of competence to know whether their own companies are potentially good investments or not. But usually I stick to things that that I feel like I can trust the management. So even though Berkshire Hathaway is still pretty complicated to me, I trust who's running it. So I would be likely to invest in that or um, other companies that I've worked at before, like Starbucks. So some of these companies are, you know, kind of ones that either you feel like you can trust or that, like, I feel like coffee is pretty straightforward and easy to understand. And it's a consumer based business. So I think a lot of consumer based businesses, you could kind of come to understand as long as they're not too complicated. Like there are some businesses that have so many brands and subsidiaries, and those could be a little bit complex. But if you have one that's pretty easy to understand, like McDonald's and Pizza Hut or Domino's, like some of those are pretty obvious, like how how they do business. So um, if you think about what things naturally make sense to you, then maybe it can be, you know, a way to explore potential investments because earlier this year I was trying to learn about Taiwan Semiconductor because Berkshire Hathaway had invested a lot in that. And then they pulled out of a lot of it. So they went from having more than 4 billion invested in TSM to now only like 600 million. So I thought that was peculiar. And so it kind of gave me pause to the semiconductor industry. Like just when I felt enthusiastic about learning about it, like I didn't invest, but I kind of just wanted to see if, if it were in my circle of competence. But then now, since it may be a little tricky for even Berkshire, I'm like, well, I'm just some amateur investor. I'm not even at the level that they are with his investment lieutenants, Todd and Ted. So if it's if it's too hard for them, maybe it's too hard for me. So yeah, like things like that, you know, you really have to consider, you know, what your own limits are to what you're capable of understanding. So how do you kind of say kind of disciplined to not be I guess sidetracked by those uh distractions? Well, uh, the good kind of thing is if 
if you develop your own sense of convictions about what is what. Um, so uh, like, of course, I'm heavily influenced by likes of someone like Charlie Munger, who has strongly denounced crypto and how Warren Buffett at last year's annual meeting, and, and they both talked about crypto in previous years, but in last year's meeting, Warren Buffett said, if you gave me all the Bitcoin in the world, I wouldn't buy it for even $25 because what would I do with it? It would just sit there. It it doesn't generate, you know, income on its own. It's not like farmland or an apartment building near NYU, which can generate rental income from the tenants and the residents. So unlike these real assets that produce income from what they offer, you know, farmland offers crops and apartment buildings offer space for people in New York City, like those are legitimate things that can produce cash flow. And, and the same with like most businesses. That's why America continues to be prosperous. But if you just have something that I like how some people have uh, called crypto of like imaginary money, it's just a bunch of, you know, kinds of zeros and ones on a computer. And even though a lot of energy went into mining them and you know, I enjoy studying some, you know, blockchain technology. I think it's fun to learn about. And I think that it could be appealing if if established companies could integrate the blockchain technology to make, you know, banking safer or perhaps maybe mortgage mortgages and deeds might be, you know, transferred on a blockchain someday. Maybe those things could be promising, but just the notion of kind of people trading Dogecoins or uh, Terra or Luna or all those different ones that, you know, kind of seem to have questionable utility. I feel like I've never been that interested in that stuff. And and I think the last time I was ever, you know, so excited about things that have questionable uh, value may have been Pokemon cards when I was 12. So, you know, at that time, we're like, ooh, a first edition Charizard. And like, it, this is like worth a lot maybe, right? But you know, it may or may not be, it's just a picture, like it, it's a really nice looking holographic picture on a piece of paper. But at the end of the day, it doesn't necessarily have that much intrinsic value. Like no matter how much people covet the Charizard card, it will not produce cash flow by itself, unlike farmland. So if we think about it like that, you know, there, there's a lot of people who may have made youtube videos on the hype about crypto and those people were productive about it like they made money based on you know people's attention of wanting to learn about crypto and and all that stuff but if in my opinion if people were actually in the coins themselves it may have been pretty much like gambling like you're lucky if you made money out of it but you shouldn't necessarily expect to make real money out of it because it's kind of like nobody knows what's going to happen and and it's kind of kind of hard to value what what the value of a network really is like of course you know some blockchain networks are as strong as its supporters and people who are really into it but i don't know how far that can take things without it being rooted to something in reality so those are just some things to consider so there's definitely a lot of things that are promising about crypto but like i never was convinced that i could do anything with it and and so like it was pretty easy for me to stay out of crypto like i've never even had any digital like no cold or hot wallets like none of those i never like did anything there so 
you know, and also with all the scammers, like that just kind of scared me. So I was like, I don't even want to, like, I don't even want someone to like cell phone hack me and then, you know, use my SIM card to break into my crypto wallet. Like that all just sounds too scary of like the horror stories I've heard. So that one was easy. But when it comes to like actual stocks of like seeing my investments go down by 50 or 60%, that can be kind of nerve wracking. And even though it used to bother me somewhat, especially when I was a newer investor, I think with experience and time, if you develop a sense of conviction in what you're investing in and you have an investment case before and against what you're invested in, you can then realize, okay, these are the reasons why I got into it and these are the reasons why I maybe should get out. And if you know what those conditions are, you know the limits of your knowledge and you know when it's time to get out of an investment, then you don't freak out as much. And I think that's helped me is just becoming more knowledgeable about what I'm invested in. Because the only reason why, if, if some people, you know, might've bought a stock because it pays dividends, but they don't really care. You know, they spent like two seconds to buy the stock. And I used to do that when I was like in my early twenties, like I bought Verizon because it gave some dividends, but then I was like, why am I in this? And it's going nowhere. And I haven't studied it. I just literally bought it because it gave dividends. And so after a while of it doing nothing really, I sold that because I never studied it. And I realized that that was just silly. So a lot of people just do that. They just buy it for, for either dividends or, you know, they think that it's going to go up in price. But then as soon as it goes down in price, they're like, oh, no, like I'm losing money. But that's only like paper losses until you lock in a loss. So I think a lot of this just comes with, you know, be getting the experience that you need and going through enough trial and error situations that you know you become a hardened investor at some point like battle tested once you've done it enough times and 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 watched your your investments crater but even if it goes down by 50 or 60 percent you have to just kind of ignore it like not let it bother you so even if that happened you just have to either keep the faith or just be like well i have no choice but to hold on to it because if i sell now I'm going to lock in the loss. So what's the point of that? So you might as well, as I'm, I'm suspecting, maybe Daily Journal did that with their current BABA holdings. I'm surprised that they haven't sold. But even though they did most likely some tax loss harvesting before, they're probably keeping their remaining amounts in it. And I'm guessing they're just going to hold on to it until they at least break even. Or they might even make a profit someday if, if Alibaba recovers or they split into the six companies and then maybe they'll you know stick with the winning ones who knows but we'll see what happens with something like that but yeah at some point you're just kind of like you know you you try to do better the next time you like charlie munger says you just try not to make the same mistake twice if you can yeah very well said what about like the shiny objects that are still not completely speculative like crypto right so ai you mentioned just now which is definitely an area that everybody can see it's very promising but then maybe it's outside of our circle of competence so how do you sort of stay disciplined and know kind of you you can't just jump in whatever is the hottest stock and just buy it because other people are buying it so can you talk about that a little bit well um that's where like you know we have to try to be aware of where our limits are so um being that 
I wasn't really sure how AI will affect Google's business model. I sold out of my Google holdings um, because it made me wonder if I should buy it at even a lower price considering this new potential risk. So I might have paid too much for, for Google at the time when I thought it was on sale. And, and so, you know, sometimes things like that, I'm, I'm saying to myself, maybe AI is still too early for me to fully understand, just like how Buffett for the longest time didn't understand computers, but then he eventually maybe understood things enough to finally buy Apple in 2016. But until that point, he just stayed away from tech and computer stuff for the longest time. So even though he's like pretty good buddies with Bill Gates, that never influenced him to buy into Microsoft when he could have like, you know, in the eighties or nineties, maybe like he, he could have done super well with Microsoft, but he refused to, you know, to kind of like go into that if he felt like he didn't understand it well enough. So, you know, with things like that, we just have to try to be honest with ourselves of what we realistically think we can understand. And so far right now, AI is a little bit out of my circle of competence. Got it. That makes total sense. If you don't mind, can you share the biggest investing mistake you've made? Um, probably like paying too much for uh, assets, like paying too much for the securities that I was in. And, and then also trying to stubbornly believe that it would recover and then being wrong. So, you know, um, I've taken a loss before on, on things that I, I was stubborn about, like, I was like, oh, based on the research and the back testing I did, it should be able to recover. And then I was just, you know, not willing to to throw in the towel. And I think that can can be what does us in. So it, it could help that if we read write down the rules and we stick to them and we're like, okay, it it broke through this floor. And even though, you know, a floor is like a stock price level, like like say you bought it at 100 and it goes down to 80 and you're like, okay, this is the loss I should have taken. I should have been okay with selling it at 80, but then you still hold on to it to like 70 or 60. That's where I may have made a mistake of like, I thought it would recover from 60 back to over 100. So, you know, I should have, when it hit that floor of 80, I should have been like, okay, time to sell, get out now. Um, so that was a mistake that I've made of, of like just, it's more like human psychology of just where you think from your own human error, like my hubris made me hold onto something that I should have gotten out of much earlier. And then on the flip side, what do you think the most valuable lessons that you learn from the value investors such as Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger are? Well, one of the most valuable things I think is, you know, if you want to have a happy life, is to have really low or no expectations. Like Warren Buffett once said, if you want to have a successful marriage, have no expectations or low expectations because, you know, some people think that they can change other people. And I try not to think about, you know, fixing someone else. I try to think about like accepting people as they are. And I think if we, if we try to lower our expectations with anything, whether it's people or the stock market, you know, if you don't insist too much that you're right, you know, you allow for room for your own human misjudgment, then then you might get pleasantly surprised. So 
I like that kind of lesson and also, you know, beating to the tune of your own drum. Like there's a reason why Buffett lives in Omaha and not in New York City is that it's it helps to get away from the noise. And I think also if you can live according to your own inner values and not be governed by what other people are doing. So, you know, things like a lot of people were really into crypto, right? It was the, you know, the hot thing to be part of in 2021. But, you know, those were not my values. Like even though it's popular with everybody else, I don't care for it. So I think it's important to live according to your own inner values. And if you can do that, you'll be more likely to be happier. So I think that those are some of the most valuable things I've learned from Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. Yeah, I love it. I think I heard him talk about that a lot too. I definitely agree. Mm -hmm. All right. So then what advice would you give to new investors who are looking to adopt a similar value investing philosophy? Well, new investors should definitely uh, study as much as they can before they, you know, just jump in the market. But it also depends on what kind of person you are. You might be a little bit eager. So then maybe it would be a good idea to use real money, like something that you can afford to lose and you won't be too upset if you were to lose, say, $100 or $1,000. And after you try to do some of your homework, invest a little bit at a time, like maybe buy one or two shares of something and see how it makes you feel. And then try to monitor your own feelings about something of how you're reacting to the ups and downs of that stock. Because you know you could read lots of books and you could do paper trading, but that's not gonna scare you. Like having skin in the game is going to maybe incite certain emotions. So I think it's to test your temperament and see how, how you just fare just with yourself because, you know, more so than figuring out companies on a logical way, the bigger hurdle is your own human psychology. So if you can master yourself, like that, that is what a lot of investing is. It's like an art of your own human behavior and controlling yourself. So um, that would be one way that I think, uh, you know, other newer investors can test their mettle is just, you know, try it out. Like through trial and error, we learn a lot. And I think sometimes that can even be a better lesson than the ones we get from books are, are the hard learned lessons from our own mistakes. That's awesome. Thank you. All right. So maybe let's switch gears a little bit because I do also want to ask you about your social media presence. Mm -hmm. Can you share with us when did you start your YouTube channel or the first kind of more public social media presence? Yeah, that was in uh, September 2020, my YouTube channel launched. And how did you grow it? And how did you kind of promote and advertise your YouTube channel? Well, I, I've not ever paid for advertising. So it's just from my own efforts. But like you mentioned earlier, when I've commented on other YouTubers videos, like some of that helps to you know, by commenting and showing sincere interest in other people's videos, other people might come to find you and then check out what you might offer. And and I just um, try to copy some of what other popular YouTubers have done, like Graham Stephan. You know, he puts his face on his thumbnail. So I thought, okay, that seems like a way to get some audience to get to know me. Like, you know, when they click on the thumbnail, they'll expect to see my face and talking to them and and those are some of the ways that have helped me. And 
you know, just trying to disseminate some of my uh, YouTube posts across either Instagram and Facebook and uh, Twitter and also on my blog. So by having a presence online, hopefully that sort of finds some people and, and, you know, I'm pretty open to helping people on, you know, whatever way they feel like engaging with me. Like some people email me and they, or they DM me on Instagram or Twitter. And then I try to answer their questions if they need help with like, for example, somewhere trying to go to the Berkshire Hathaway meeting. So I've been answering some people's questions because I went to that for the first time last year. So I'm just trying to be helpful to people and yeah, just like kind of spread the knowledge because I feel like I'm very fortunate and I'm just grateful to be able to, you know, be in this country. And like Buffett said, like um, if, if we're in America, it's like kind of a big land of opportunity. And I could have easily been from like another country that doesn't have as much opportunity here. So I'm, I just feel very lucky and want to pay it forward to other people of, you know, all the, all the things that I was, you know, fortunate to learn about, I feel like it can be helpful to other people's learning journeys for their personal finances or learning how to be an investor. And I just happen to feel like this is one of the better ways that one can invest. Like it's not the only way there are, there are many roads to success. So, you know, even though I happen to um, like this kind of style of investing, it doesn't mean that it's the only way. So, you know, I'm also open to learning other ways that that could be good ways to invest too. So, you know, hopefully other people will find me too and they they share, um, you know, what ways are helpful for them. And then I can learn something from other people's financial journeys. So yeah, that's some of, you know, what, what I've done to, to try to get out there more, to have more of a presence of, of trying to just, you know, be part of a positive feedback loop of like, if you can be part of a flywheel of, you know, giving to people, I think the more that we give to others, the more the universe will come back to us in a hopefully positive karmic way. Yeah, very well said. So what's your grand vision for your YouTube channel or maybe kind of your own brand? Well, I, I guess it, it's this more like a hobby. So I just try to, you know, um, be helpful. I mean, it would be cool if there were more, you know, subscribers. I I will not take, uh, you know, say no to if people want to subscribe. But like, uh, yeah, basically, I'm just trying to keep it kind of casual, not, not be, um, you know, like I mentioned earlier, kind of keep low expectations. And if it, if it works out to something bigger, great. And if not, I... I, at least I helped a few people along the way and that makes me feel good at the end of the day of like, you know, for, for the few people that I may have positively impacted their lives, that's kind of good enough to me because, you know, I, I try to help my friends and family. And so it just, um, yeah, I just, I just want to be part of a community of, of people who try to help people and, and that's good enough for me. Got it. Got it. That's great. Do you have any other influencers or value investors that you would recommend to the listeners? Yeah, like Guy Spear is great and Monish Pabride. They're good buddies and disciples of Buffett style investing. And also there's a lot of, you know, great learning content out there from uh, like a podcast, like the Investors Podcast Network. And they had, you know, their flagship podcast 
we study billionaires and they also have another podcast that I was on called millennial investing. And it, it's just great to learn from many different kinds of investors. And, and, and there's also, of course, lots of books, like I mentioned earlier, Laura Rittenhouse and Adam Cecil and, and Warren Buffett also likes this book, um, common stocks and uncommon profits by Phil Fisher. And I've yet to read that, but I've heard really great things about that. So, you know, um, there's one thing that we can learn a lot from, and and these would be dead influencers. And and I think it's kind of funny how Phil Town talked about dead influencers, like Phil Fisher or Ben Graham have passed away, and we could learn a lot from those guys. So, you know, we we should, you know, look to a lot of books for some really great material of of ways that we can, you know, just grow as human beings and investors and and other things that that I think are just helpful for getting along with people are things like from Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People and also Richard Cialdini's book Influence. So some of those would be, you know, ways that we can just self-improve. And I'm, I, I'm a really big fan of trying to self-improve. So whatever way that we can get along better with people and help others, I feel like is part of my purpose as a human being is just, you know, I want to grow as an investor and also help people at the same time. That's great. That's great. I think you just answered my next question, which is book recommendations for either <laughs> improvement. But anything else you want to add to that? Any other books that really helped you? Uh, there. I mean, like uh, another great teacher is Adam Mead, and he came out with this big book of a uh, great reference called the complete financial history of Berkshire Hathaway. And, and I've interviewed him before on my YouTube channel and podcast. And he's also a really great resource. And he has a YouTube channel called the Oracle's Classroom. And also he's on Twitter as BRK underscore student. And he also has this um, heavy duty newsletter that's a paid newsletter called Watchlist Investing. So he's also a really great resource and this other investor named Chris Bloomstrand. And um, also, like, there are just so many great investors out there. And it's really a matter of, you know, if you find ones that you either watch, you know, YouTube channel, uh, YouTube videos about or read some of their letters, you could learn a lot from like, I've heard great things about um, Rob Vinal, and also Matthew Peterson. And also, even though this investor is no longer investing publicly, uh, Nicholas Sleep. I'm trying to read some of his letters. So, you know, some of those guys, you know, there's so much to learn and, and I, I can't even find enough time to learn from all these people, but also other great people to learn about on a more macro level are Ray Dalio and Howard Marks. So things like uh, things that they've put out there are, are really great too. And, and I also like Jeremy Grantham. I just read some of his recent letters on his website, GMO which I think is like kind of a research investing uh, firm. So yeah, from people like that, those are all, you know, I know I combined influencers and books and learning materials, but there's just so much we can learn. And, and of course, you know, Phil Town, he has a lot of great resources that are free, like um, uh, investing calculators on his site, Rule One Investing. So there's so much that's free out there that we don't necessarily have to pay for to, to learn from. and also, 
you know, use your local library if you can. Like, I think library systems are like underrated. Like, I think they can offer so much great resource material that we don't have to buy books necessarily. We can just borrow the books or other stuff from there. And it's pretty awesome. Yeah, totally agree. That's awesome. My last question is, how can people find more about you? Do you want to tell our listeners your YouTube channel and so forth? Sure. Yeah. If, if people want to check out my videos, they can find my YouTube channel with my name, Michelle Markey. And Markey is spelled M-A-R-K-I and investing. So just Michelle Markey investing on the YouTube channel. And I also have a podcast that I do with my partner, Sina Lohnholt, and she's from Denmark. So it was really cool that we both found each other on Instagram and then we went to the Berkshire meeting together and now we run this podcast called Investing Mastermind Podcast and people can find that on wherever they get their podcasts like Apple or Spotify and so on. So yeah, if people want to learn more, feel free to go there or people can add me and talk to me on Instagram if they want at Michelle Markey. So I'm sure people will be able to find me. I'm, I'm probably, you know, out there and about. So yeah, thank you so much for you know, giving me this opportunity to also plug my social media. Of course, of course. Thank you so much, Michelle. This is wonderful. Oh.